Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. It is 7 a.m. on Saturday morning in Shanghai, 10 o'clock in Sydney, here in New York, we're still on Friday, where it's 6 p.m. I'm Richard Quest, in for Julia Chatterley, who's on her way to France. And wherever you are in this world, it's your first move. Whatever side of the dateline you are on, you are most welcome to First Move. And here's your need to know. Thousands of mourners have defied Vladimir Putin and paid their respects to Alexei Navalny during his funeral in Moscow. President Biden promises aid will be airdropped for the people of Gaza and tensions on the seas. So we visit Taiwan's frontline islands as relations strain with China. Also thinking out the boxu, literally. The world's growing appetite for Japanese snacks. It's a conversation that's coming up shortly. First though, morning in defiance, where thousands of people have gathered to pay their final respects to Alexei Navalny as the Russian opposition leader was laid to rest in Moscow. It was all despite a very heavy police presence and the threat of arrest for unauthorized memorials, as they're saying. A human rights monitoring group says more than 100 people have been detained across Russia. Navalny's widow, who's been living abroad, did not attend his funeral. It's been two weeks since he died in prison at the age of 47. The Kremlin said on Friday it had nothing to say to his family. Outside of Russia, people have been holding their own memorials, with flowers being laid in front of the Russian embassy in Berlin. Similar scenes in London and in Warsaw, an emotional candle-lit crowd lit candles in his honour. CNN's Matthew Chance has our report from Moscow. They came in their thousands to pay their last respects. Supporters of the late Russian opposition leader, Alexei Navalny, lining up outside the Moscow church ahead of his funeral an act of bravery and defiance in a country where dissent, even grief for a Kremlin critic, is rarely tolerated. Let, let me ask you about the risks, because the authorities have not particularly welcomed this event. People have been detained for paying their respects to Alexei Navalny. Are you concerned about the risk you are taking? No. Why? Because it's my slogan, not to think about risks. Do what you should do. Do you hold Putin responsible for the death of Alexei Navalny? Oh, yes, definitely. No doubt. No doubt. The Kremlin denies it. They say that they are. Oh, they said. <laughs> if they ever say and agree with what they have done bad, I would be the first to applaud. All right, well, this is the, the hearse, the van 
which is taking the body of Alexei Navalny into this church uh, on the outskirts of Moscow, where Russia will finally bid farewell to one of its most prominent opposition figures. You can see thousands of people from all over the region have turned out to pay their respects, clapping as his body enters for that funeral service. Are you surprised that the authorities have allowed this funeral to go ahead? I don't know what to say about it, because uh, I think it would be a huge mistake to not allow to do it, you know, because there's so many people and uh, they came here to pay, pay the last respect to Alexei. And Alexei, for us and for me personally, was uh, like, I don't know, Russian Nelson Mandela or Russian Martin Luther King. So, people are, people are uh, chanting his name now. Yeah. His last name. Death may have silenced Navalny, but his name is now on everyone's lips. Inside the church, the funeral service was short. No political speeches, just blessings over his open casket. Later at the cemetery, Navalny's distraught parents kiss their 47-year-old son goodbye. His wife and children, concerned for their own safety, stayed away. But so many came in their place. Outside, crowds of mourners waited patiently for a last glimpse, for the cemetery gates to open and for Russian police on close guard here to finally wave them through. Right, well, this is the site inside the cemetery and the memorial to Alexei Navalny. People are coming here to lay their flowers and, as you can see, and also to file past the actual grave site which is there. People are picking up soil and throwing it into the ground onto the casket as a final farewell to that opposition figure. A figure who in death, as in life, is drawing thousands of Russians critical of the Kremlin onto the streets. Matthew Chance, CNN Moscow. President Biden has announced that the United States will soon start airdropping much needed supplies into Gaza. We need to do more and the United States will do more. In the coming days, we're going to join with our friends in Jordan and others in providing airdrops of additional food and supplies. We're going to insist that Israel facilitate more trucks and more routes to get more and more people the, the help they need. No excuses, because the truth is, aid flowing to Gaza is nowhere nearly enough. Now, Israel has blocked some aid from entering by land, pushing France, Jordan and others to bring it in by air. But of course, airdropping aid brings its own set of problems. Kevin Lipfack is with me. Um, we know there are difficulties, the, the, the logistical difficulties, uh, but the biggest issue here is that they're doing it. I mean, you know, they are dropping aid as a result of one of their closest allies not doing what they're supposed to do. Yeah, that's exactly right, Richard. And you'll excuse me because Marine One sure. is taking off behind me. 
But you're, you're right. This is you cannot uh, view this situation as anything less than President Biden sort of being forced into a last resort option to try and get aid into Gaza because Israel is blocking aid going in over land over a number of different crossings from Israel into the besieged strip and also implying a lot of restrictions on those trucks going forward. And this step does come with it its own risks. Anytime you have American pilots flying over a war zone, dropping things things into the strip that comes with its own set of risks, whether it's what happens on the ground, who's on the ground, or whether uh, those pilots are facing their own risks from Hamas. This is not the option that President Biden would necessarily prefer. And he did allude to that in the Oval Office today, saying that he would insist Israel do more to get more trucks in to Gaza. But in the end, officials, American officials at least, believe this is the only option at this point that they can get this aid uh, into to Gaza. And I think the events over the last several days, including that very chaotic scene surrounding a truck, really sharpened the view inside the administration that more needs to be done urgently and immediately to get this aid in. You also hear uh, American officials talking about the potential maritime route to get aid in potentially through Cyprus, bringing ships and landing them in Gaza. But a lot of the details of that option remains very much unknown as well, including where exactly they would right. land in Gaza. OK, now, the, the, the situation, of course, you, you, you rightly point out the logistical, but there's also the political, if you will, the geopolitical. I spoke to Congressman Connolly, a Democrat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Listen to what he had to say about at the end of the day, what Biden is doing is a slap in the face to Israel for whatever reason. Have a listen. I think it's a real uh, rebuke to uh, Netanyahu's government that the president of the United States would say, well, uh, we've uh, tried to get you to uh, increase truck supplies coming into Gaza. You haven't done that. And therefore, we're going to do it. And we're going to do it by airlift and with or without your consent. So, so taking that on board, how much more pressure do you think the administration can put on Israel, which seems following the events of yesterday, seems to be pretty impervious. Yeah, I think there's a d distinction between how much they can apply and how much pressure they can apply in Israel and how much they're actually willing to apply in Israel, because right. there are steps that they could take. For example, conditioning the amount of aid that they send to the country on concrete steps to apply uh, to advance humanitarian aid in the Strip. But when we heard from John Kirby today, he indicated that there would be no more steps that the U.S. was taking to apply pressure on Israel. They will not condition aid on uh, concrete concrete steps to bring in humanitarian assistance. Instead, they're relying on these phone conversations between President Biden and Netanyahu, phone conversations with other allies in the region. But you're right, to this point, that has not necessarily been successful in convincing the Israelis to step up their efforts to help this besieged strip. So I think it remains to be seen. The other thing that President Biden is really putting his hopes on is this hostage deal between Israel and Hamas, which is being negotiated and which does seem to be in the final stages of negotiations. And the real hope is that a temporary ceasefire, potentially six weeks long, would allow more aid to go in. But at this point, it doesn't appear that the U.S. is planning to use any of the leverage that it does have mm -hmm. uh, to actually convince Israel to do more to to, to, be, to uh, alleviate some of the suffering that we're seeing.
Kevin, I'm grateful. Thank you. Emma Elbegeer has more on the desperate aid situation. We'll get to that story later in the programme. A crucial hearing in Florida in an effort to move the trial date in Donald Trump's classified documents case. On Friday, the session wrapped up. There's no, no ruling from the judge. The prosecutors are requesting a July 8th start to the trial. Trump's team is offering another date, August the 12th, arguing that anything closer to the presidential election would be more damaging at the same time as this was going on in Georgia, there was, a, of course, the hearing about whether or not the district attorney should be removed from Trump's election subversion case there. Jessica Levinson is, the, is a professor of law at Loyola Law School with me. All right. I mean, let's take them bit by bit. So uh, the date of the trial, which way do you think that's going to go? I think that what we saw is President Trump being very happy after the Florida hearing this morning. I think that trial is frankly unlikely to happen before the election. Uh, reporting indicates that Judge Cannon, who was, of course, appointed by the former president, uh, really dressed down the special prosecutors. And I think all along she has been allowing for the delays that the former president's team has been asking for. This is a case that could have gone arguably much faster, uh, but you have a judge who's very much amenable to the arguments that are being put forward by Trump and his attorneys. All right. Now, the other one in Georgia of a rather sordid matter, but at the end of the day, um, does it matter? Uh, you know, if, let, let's just say worst case scenario, worst case, the, the, the judge says, yes, the uh, district attorney, the prosecutor, they behaved appallingly. Uh, but it doesn't ergo de facto mean that the indictment has to be thrown out. There's no scenario in which the indictment would need to be thrown out, regardless of how, to your question, you know, regardless of how the the district attorney, excuse me, Fonnie Wade behaved and whether or not there is an actual conflict of interest there, none of that has to do with the allegations against the former president. It's just who can prosecute this case. There's nothing in this hearing that has anything to do with whether or not the former president picked up the phone and called the secretary of state and said, you have to find me more votes, or whether or not he engaged in an effort to try and undermine the election. That is completely separate apart. This is just about who can try the case. And frankly, again, I would say another win for the former president. Simply having this hearing makes it look like the charges against him might be politically motivated. Right. But who would? Let's assume uh, the DA gets kicked off. Who would take over? I mean, the, the, there's an entire uh, roster, hierarchy of people one assumes in a process-oriented system, system that would just move into place and it would continue. It would continue. It could continue. There could be, if Fonnie Willis is disqualified, and I don't think she will be, but depending on how that reads, it could be the entire office, at which point you need another body, for instance, a group from the attorney general's office to step forward and start the case. Now, this is a complicated RICO right. case, and therefore it's not going to be somebody tomorrow who's able to pick up from where the case is right now. It would, again, be a delay. One quick question. I, I, as I look at all these various cases, 
Is it your view that some of these will be well and truly underway and some will be over and done by Election Day? Oh, you have a lawyer, so you're going to have a lawyer's answer, right? It depends. I mean, I think the answer is probably after the Supreme Court's decision earlier this week to take the immunity case. Probably not. Uh, Now, I think that the New York hush money case really is going forward on March 25th. That's largely seen as the weakest of all of these criminal Mm. cases. But I think with respect to the federal cases, it's looking less likely. With respect to this Georgia case, again, this hearing has been a huge boon for the former president in terms of delay. Right. It was a lawyer's uh, answer, but just don't send me the bill. Thank you very much. Grateful to you. Have a good weekend. Have a good weekend. Now, in Cuba, there is a massive new increase in the price of fuel that has taken effect. Prices have shot up by more than 500 percent. It's the biggest jump in some in decades. The increase is raising major fears about the cost of living in a country where many earn less than $20 a month. Patrick Ottman, more now on how Cubans have been preparing for this new vast expense. Just about everything that has four wheels is now lined up at a gas station all across Cuba because starting on Friday, the price of fuel is going to jump up more than 500%. So you see people in old American cars, old Soviet era cars, Chinese cars filling up and many times, many cases, siphoning out that fuel to fill up again. People have been waiting for hours, sometimes Uh, more than a day to fill up their cars because the price is going to jump up so dramatically. It's the largest price hike that people say they can ever remember taking place. Cuba, of course, receives, has received fuel for decades now from allies like Venezuela and Russia, and that has allowed the government those donations of fuel to subsidize the fuel they sell to their people. The Cuban government points out that up until now, fuel is I've been as cheap here as just about anywhere else in the world. Now it's going to cost, if you use the black market exchange rates, about $20 to fill up uh, your car with gasoline, a full tank uh, of gasoline. And that uh, may not seem like a lot, but remember, uh, $20 is more than what most government workers make here each month. Uh, So it is a substantial increase, and people are concerned that it's going to lead to higher transportation prices, higher food prices, and that as uh, already out-of-control inflation gets worse, that it simply may not be affordable for many Cubans to live here. Patrick Ottman, CNN Havana. Now, in a moment, your minute weather forecast is ahead. Also, Elon Musk is taking his long-running battle with OpenAI and CEO San Altman to court. The former business partners have fallen out over the future of artificial intelligence. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. 
Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Julia is off home with request. Now to tensions between Beijing and Taiwan over Kinmenditz. China's Coast Guard has begun regular patrols last month around these islands, which are controlled by Taiwan. Chinese officers recently intercepted a Taiwanese tourist boat in the area following the death of two Chinese fishermen there. CNN's Will Ripley with our report. Just off the foggy coast near Taiwan's frontline Jinmen Islands, the Chinese Coast Guard intercepts a Taiwanese tourist boat. Taiwan's Coast Guard calls it an unprecedented forced inspection, triggering panic among passengers and the public. It was very scary. I was afraid that I might not be able to return to Taiwan. These are the waters where that incident happened, where the Chinese Coast Guard boarded the Taiwanese tourist boat and checked everyone's ID, spooking a lot of the people on board. You can see how close we are to the skyline of the Chinese city of Xiamen. There are Chinese construction boats all throughout these waters. Pretty easy to mix up which side, the Chinese side or the Taiwanese side you're on when you're this close. Cross-strait tensions rising here ever since the Lunar New Year holiday. A Chinese speedboat capsized in a chase with Taiwan's Coast Guard. Similar to this one several years ago. Chinese fishing boats accused by Taiwan of trespassing the island's territorial waters more than 1,000 times last year alone. As the speedboat was snaking, trying to evade inspection and even drifting, it capsized and four people fell into the sea. Two Chinese fishermen drowned. Two others survived, telling a conflicting story. Even if we make quick turns, we won't capsize. It only capsized when it was rammed into. An infuriated Beijing accuses Taipei of covering up the fishermen's deaths. Chinese officials blame Taiwan's ruling party, reiterating Beijing's sovereign claim over Taiwan, promising to step up patrols in the area. Taiwan is deploying its own Coast Guard in response. Analysts say the mainland may be testing how far it can push Taiwan, trying to erode its ability to control waters long governed by Taipei. We've been out on this boat for less than two hours, and we've already seen at least four Chinese Coast Guard boats, including that one right over there, which just made a U-turn. Our captain says that means they're monitoring us just like we're watching them. Rattling the nerves of Taiwanese tour boat operators. Do you worry that this could be the place where there could be uh, the beginning of a bigger conflict between Taiwan and mainland China? To be frank, I am concerned, but this is not what our people want. If there is conflict, 
both sides will be devastated. Both sides watching what happens next. Surging tensions on the Taiwan Strait threatening to spill over. Will Ripley, CNN, Jinmen, Taiwan. And so to today's money move, the month of March. It's been a strong start for global stocks with fresh records in the United States, Europe and Asia. So let's start here. The Wall Street. The Nasdaq has hit an all time high along with the S&P. Then you've got the Japanese Nikkei at fresh records, too, closing in just below the milestone 40,000 mark. And Chinese stocks finished the week with gains as well. And though it was the fifth straight monthly drop in Chinese factory uh, activity. And that's, of course, raised the odds of a new stimulus when the country's parliament meets next week. Elon Musk has filed a lawsuit against OpenAI. Now, OpenAI is the company behind ChatGPT. Elon Musk was one of the firm's founders. He left it in 2018. Now he's suing for breach of contract. The argument is OpenAI has strayed from its original mission as a non-profit. Mr. Musk wants an OpenAI to make its technology available to the public and to give back the profit it made from its biggest client, Microsoft. No response from OpenAI, and it's faced criticism from Musk before, as Claire Duffy explains. I think we do have to look at this lawsuit in this larger context of Elon Musk's ongoing feud with OpenAI with Sam Altman and by extension with OpenAI business partner Microsoft. Essentially, since ChatGPT exploded, made OpenAI a household name, Elon Musk has been very publicly going, wait a minute, I helped co-found this organization in 2015. I invested $44 million to help get it off the ground. And now it is straying from the founding mission and organizational structure with which it was started. That has now become the basis of this lawsuit. Elon Musk is essentially alleging that by making its most advanced AI model private and available for purchase, OpenAI is abandoning, breaching its founding document. And I want to read to you just a little bit from this founding document which says that the technology that comes out of OpenAI would benefit the public and the corporation will seek to open source the technology for the public benefit when applicable, and says the corporation is not organized for the private gain of any person. But look, I think we do have to question whether if Elon Musk were still involved in OpenAI, if he hadn't left a few years ago, if he were the one making money from this technology and getting credit for this really game-changing technology, would he have quite the same issue uh, with the company's evolution that he does now. And I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I mean, let's not forget that Elon Musk is also trying to get off the ground XAI, this company that essentially is a wannabe competitor to OpenAI. So I think all of that is really important context to understand this lawsuit. Now, nonetheless, this lawsuit could have really significant implications for OpenAI, for Microsoft, and for the larger artificial intelligence arms race. Microsoft has built this huge business, AI business, on the back of OpenAI's technology. And now what Elon Musk is seeking to do with this lawsuit is to force OpenAI to open source its technology to make it available to anyone, which would undermine OpenAI's business, Microsoft business and really change the competitive landscape in this space. I think one of the interesting things that could come out of this lawsuit 
if it makes it to the discovery phase, is more information about the structure of OpenAI. The company says it's still a nonprofit. It just has a commercial entity within it. But we don't really know a lot about what that looks like. And we also don't know a lot about the structure of OpenAI's partnership with Microsoft. So that's one of the things I'll be looking for as this lawsuit moves forward. Claire Duffy, CNN, New York. First, it was early cherry blossoms. Now some snow is headed to Japan's ski slopes. Chad Myers is with me. Chad. Yeah, not cold enough, Richard, mm -hmm. to ruin the cherry blossoms, but oh. certainly, you know, you get on the train in Tokyo and you head to Nagano and you'll be skiing by tomorrow morning. There is more snow coming, just powder after powder. We've had powder days all week now here on the western slopes of Japan. So probably by tonight and into tomorrow, another half of a meter. And that's probably just perfect for a beginner once they groom the slopes and slow them down a little bit. But uh, take all the snow you can get. They'll melt this snow later in the year and actually use it for drinking water as well. It's the upslope flow. The cold air comes off of Russia, runs over the sea, and then up into the mountains, and then it snows. All that moisture wants to get wrung out. Now, Shanghai, you're going to have a couple warm days, and then a cool Sunday, Monday, as we work our way into next week. So the cold air is not done just yet for Shanghai, but uh, it's on its way out. I mean, this is really almost the first day of spring when it looks at a calendar, you know, March, I know it's supposed to be at the end of March, but some people talk about March 1st, especially here in Australia, talking about now seeing the rain showers across the northern part of the state. Sydney, though, you've got a big couple of days coming up for you. You are going to be go-hung-ho go gung -ho here as we talk about these parades going on, and all the way through, even into Tuesday, we are going to have some parties here in Sydney and pretty good weather. I don't even see a rain shower for you and temperatures aren't blisteringly hot either. Really, only in the 20s. Richard. They look absolutely perfect. A nice yeah. 28 degrees for parading. Thank you, Chad Myers. Yeah. Uh, uh, this is CNN. First move. Warm welcome. It's the first move, a look at the international headlines. Thousands of mourners have gathered in Moscow on Friday for the funeral of the Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Those there risked arrest by turning up. One human rights group reported more than 100 people have been detained across Russia with the Kremlin warning against makeshift memorials. There was little coverage of the funeral inside Russia and the live video feed from the church appeared to jam shortly before the start of the service. A trio of wildfires ripped through the Texas panhandle and they've killed at least two people. The Smokehouse Creek fire alone is the largest fire the state's ever seen. It has burned more than a million acres and little hope for relief. The weekend's going to bring it with it dry air and ferocious winds which will fan the flames. Taylor Swift kicks off the first of her six sold-out shows in Singapore tonight. It's her only stop in Southeast Asia. Authorities say they gave the pop star a grant uh, with the hope that it, their visit would be a boon to the economy. It reportedly came with an exclusivity clause. The condition is Singapore would be Swift's only tour stop in the region. We talked earlier 
in the program about how the U.S. has announced it will join other nations by dropping aid by air into Gaza. President Biden spoke to reporters moments ago when he said that he hoped there would be a ceasefire deal between Israel and Hamas by the Muslim holy month of Ramadan, which is set to start on March the 10th. The president noted they're working hard, but they aren't there yet. Given the desperate levels of hunger in Gaza, airdrops may all be a little too late. Uh, planes can only carry so much compared to the hundreds of trucks that were going into Gaza on a daily basis before the war. And it's a marker of how dire the situation has become. According to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza, more than 100 people were killed trying to get to food after Israeli soldiers opened fire. And yet warehouses full of food, medical supplies, rice wheelchairs are all there, all waiting in neighboring countries. CNN's Nima Elbgar now on reports from Jordan on why aid isn't making it into Gaza. And of course, what we're about to show you is disturbing. Pallets of food aid with messages of love. Airdropped into Gaza for a desperate population. This is a Jordanian flight with more countries looking to join the aid effort, among them the US. But this isn't a good news story. On the ground, a glimpse of how much more is needed to keep starving Gazans from falling into famine. Airdrops are inefficient and expensive. You just can't drop enough food for a starving population. To stave off famine, you need thousands of trucks filled with food flooding into Gaza. But that's not happening. We were granted rare access to this warehouse in Jordan. One of the key waypoints for aid, now a choke point. All of the aid that you see here is sorely needed in Gaza, but it's still waiting for clearance. Why? Well, CNN spoke to dozens of humanitarian workers and donor government officials who detailed arbitrary Israeli restrictions on aid, often with little to no explanation, impeding a multi-billion dollar humanitarian effort, even as Gazans are desperate to receive it. About a thousand trucks worth of essential medical aid and food supplies meant for Gaza, collecting dust, waiting to be cleared by Israeli officials. I mean, these are baby wipes. Um, yes. Why are you still waiting for permission on baby wipes? I don't know. I mean, you have bandages. Yes. Um, we're coming up over here. You've got wheelchairs, crutches. In that kind of war situation, these yeah. are really, really important things for people, medicines, vitamin C over yes. here? Yes, and this is what we think, what we believe. It is a crucial need that need to be sent immediately to Gaza. There is no excuse why it's still in our warehouse. It's not just here that they're confused. Previously, Israel has said it's restricting military use items and provided a list. Now humanitarians tell CNN they have not received an update so they're relying on guesswork. CNN has obtained documents from three major participants in the humanitarian operation. A ghost list, compiled by organizations piecing together the most frequently rejected items. Among them, anesthesia, crutches, generators, water purification tablets and filtration systems, solar panels, ventilators, tent poles, 
X-ray machines and oxygen cylinders. Publicly, the Israeli government agency Kogat claims that it has abided by a 2008 banned items list. In private, Kogat has said that that document is now obsolete, according to a humanitarian official in direct contact with the Israeli unit. The human cost of miscalculating is immeasurable. For months now, even one rejected item means trucks like these, filled with aid, can be turned back even after waiting for days to get into Gaza. And on the ground, the reality is that without these critical supplies, people like Dr. Hassan Abu Sitta, a renowned war surgeon, are working in conditions even he has never seen. Because we didn't have any antiseptic, I had made a solution of uh, washing up liquid um, and vinegar and some saline. And so I would have to pour that over the wound and then scrub the wound down. It's probably the most, the darkest moment of my life because you're doing it, the patient is screaming, the child is screaming knowing that if you hadn't, that child would be dead by the end of the day. Dr. Abu Siddha's experience in Gaza is not unique. What you are about to see here is very disturbing. With very little basic medicine, doctors are making decisions they never thought they would have to make. Dr. Hani Busesu turned his kitchen into an operating theater to save his niece's life after she says she was hit by an Israeli tank in her home. He amputated her leg with a kitchen knife without anesthetic. At Busesu miraculously survived. At just 18, she has already experienced enough pain for a lifetime. When aid does come into Gaza, thousands gather, clambering onto the trucks, even as Israeli gunfire rings out. Torn between fear and hunger, over a hundred killed and hundreds more injured, yet you can see here people still clinging to what little they managed to get. The Israeli army says it's not responsible for what happened here. But as our investigation shows, at the very least, Israel created the conditions for this tragedy. Ni'mal Baghir Azarqa, Jordan. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. A beautiful sight there for your Saturday morning if you're waking up in Asia. Uh, Japan is well and truly preparing for Sakura, the annual cherry blossom season. Peak blooms expected in Tokyo by March 22nd. It's only three weeks away. Peak bloom, it's a, something I witnessed myself on World of Wonder last year. I have taken dozens of pictures of the cherry blossom and some of them are quite good. 
but none of them have captured the essence of Sakura, the existential here today, gone tomorrow nature of the festival and spring. In fact, it's only really being here and seeing it that elevates it beyond the mere chocolate box photos. And here is the chocolate box photo. Well, the chocolate box itself. The delivery company is called Boxu and it offers a cherry blossom theme snack collection. I'm going to show you what we've got here. Boxu means box, by the way. We have the organic Japanese tea. We've got, oh, I recognize chocolate. Tuxedo and pan chocolate. Sake. Oh, I like the look of this. The startup, by the way, it was founded in 2016. It sells snacks by subscription, shipping around 300,000 boxes a year to customers across hundreds of countries. It's going for growth. It's acquired a rival Japan crate last year. Not sure about that one. Uh, Danny Tang is the CEO and founder of Boxu. He joins me uh, from New York. Good to have you, sir. Uh, thank you. Now, why? Why did you suddenly... Oh, butter buttercream sandwich biscuit. That's where I'm going to start. Why did you decide that this subscription box idea was something you wanted to do? What was what drove it? Yeah, so I'm originally from the New York City area, but then after in college, I went to Stanford and studied psychology and Japanese and just utterly fell more and more in love with Japanese culture and food. And um, after I graduated, I had a job at Google working in marketing, mm -hmm. but then soon quit moved to Tokyo because it was always a big dream of mine to live there. And um, in total, I lived there for four years and got fluent at Japanese, got to eat a lot of amazing food. In my last year there, I even met somebody who's now my husband. His name is Shinsuke. Right. We've been together 12 years. And so my whole life transformed when I lived in Japan. So when I moved back to New York, I wanted to continue working on something and doing something that connected back to my love and passion for Japan there. But right. But but it, that's one thing to do that. I mean, you could start a tourist company. Why Japanese <laughs> snacks? I mean, what was the point? And, and some of them are very nice. But but what, why does a New Yorker or somebody living in New York want to sell snacks? Well, because snacks are incredibly special in Japan. People already know about a lot of the like bigger kind of famous things like Japanese Kit Kats here in America. But what a lot of people don't know is that in Japan, there's all of these family generational businesses that have been making snacks for mm. like two, three hundred years. And you can only get it in Japan. And it's a very unique kind of family lineage type of business that, frankly, I don't have never seen in most other countries around the world, including America. And so like one, I wanted to share that with America and the world. And like kind of beyond that, I wanted to have something that can make people feel close to different cultures. Our whole mission at Boxu is to bridge right. cultures through authentic Japanese and Asian food. Right. So, but, 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 so, then, mm -hmm. but, then, but then how do you get people to keep buying? I can understand people might buy one or two or whatever, but it's this idea of a subscription model. I mean, that's... That's what you, so you've got to keep not only getting them to subscribe, you've then got to keep changing the snacks within them and finding new snacks. Correct. Um, but that's what makes it really fun. It's that every single month, right? I have my box here as well. Every single month is a totally different curation. And we source it from like 10 to 14 different family businesses throughout Japan. And this keeps it exciting for people because it's almost like you get to travel to a different part or region or season of Japan every month that you get it. And that keeps it, the subscription model actually works really well if you change up what's in the box and people are looking for 
discovery and access and just like kind of they want to be wowed, right? Like, like you can just see that we really focus a lot on kind of um, the curation, mm -hmm. and this all is right. also our, our chocolate box for Valentine's last month, and it's everything is black inside the box. So we also curate based on color and make sure that it's super tasty and really fun, and it's a really good family bonding experience as well. What's the one thing you've discovered doesn't work in the box? Doesn't work in the box. Um, so that's a great question. We have probably tasted and shipped and tried like over a thousand snacks by now from Japan of all different types. Oh. And unfortunately, after trying so many times, red bean does not work in the box, even though red beans are very traditional Japanese dessert. Right. But uh, Americans and Westerners, just, just it's not right in the palate yet. It's getting there, but not quite there yet. All right, so when I finish and I have my cup of tea before I go to bed tonight, cup of cocoa, actually, I'm a great... Do I have the soccer senbet? Do I have the pear fromage biscuit? The strange thing that looks like a something or other. The buttercream sandwich or the taksumasmu and pan chocolate. Which one will go nicely with my hot chocolate tonight? Ooh, I think the hot chocolate would go really well with the onpon, the chocolate onpon you mentioned at the end. It's from Hokkaido. That is a traditional kind of like white bean <laughs> cake, but we, because we add chocolate to it, the maker adds chocolate right. to it. It helps really bridge products and it's work, works for the palate. Good answer. That's the one I was going for anyway, whatever you'd said. Uh, the, only the only problem is I doubt it's going to last until uh, hot chocolate time tonight. Good to see you, Dan. Thank you so much, sir. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. After the break, we're going to remember the incredible story of a Japanese diplomat who helped thousands of people, thousands of Jews flee war-torn Europe and in doing so risked his life, his job and his family. It was 1940 and a Japanese diplomat helped thousands of Jewish refugees flee wartime Europe and now credited with saving their lives. More than 80 years on, his life and legacy have been honored at an event here in the United States. Biana Goldoriga brings us an incredible story. But for this man, my father uh, would not be here. I would not be here. Our children would not be here. Japanese diplomat Chun Senpo Sugihara helped save thousands of Jews fleeing Lithuania during World War II. Generations of Holocaust survivors and their families gathered in Chicago this February to celebrate Sugihara's legacy and to honor him. My story is uh, a miracle. We were captured by the Nazis when I was seven years old. Because of the brilliance of my parents, we escaped. And there, another miracle occurred. Chihun Sugihara issued over 2,000 visas. After Germany invaded Poland in 1939, tens of thousands of Jews fled to Lithuania. Sugihara was the first Japanese diplomat posted there. And in the summer of 1940, a large number of Jewish refugees gathered outside the Japanese consulate, looking for visas that would allow them to pass through Japan before seeking refuge in a third country. Despite receiving orders from Tokyo that all visa holders must have finished their procedure for their entry visas and have money to travel, Sugihara defied his government, and in less than two months, he issued over 2,000 visas to Jews and their families. 
Sugihara died in 1986. His granddaughter and great-granddaughter attended the ceremony. As a young generation, I sometimes see the world a bit pessimistic way, but his action is so impactful. To stand up against immorality is the greatest deed you could do in a lifetime. Just a year after Sugihara issued the visas, Germany invaded Lithuania. When Sugihara got back to Japan after the war, he was forced to retire, but not without saving the lives of thousands during his career. It's something that should be told and should give an inspiration to others to save those who are in need. Years later, he said, I couldn't abandon those people who had come to me for help. I didn't do anything special. I just did what I had to do. Thank you. His courage and sacrifice continues to be honored all these years later. Finally, it is Mardi Gras night in Sydney. The weather's going to be spectacularly good, according to Chad, Chad Mars. As you know, I've just returned from Sydney. There are rainbow flags everywhere, including this one splashed across the tram platform. And Chris and my husband, Chris and I, snapped that picture. And we also enjoyed the best Sydney had to offer, a place I've been to many times, one of my favourite countries. And if you are there tonight, thank you for welcoming this pair of bums and have a great Mardi Gras. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.